So today, with it being our fall kickoff, everything sort of starting back up, ministry and whatnot, children's Sunday school, the, the adult Sunday school before the service, we're also starting off a new sermon series, and we're going to be looking at songs of the Bible. So probably if you think about that, you're probably thinking, oh, probably going to be looking at Psalms. And you're right, in part, we are going to be looking at some of the Psalms, uh, but we're also going to be in the New Testament a little bit. We may not realize this, or some of us may not, but in various parts of the New Testament, certain passages, we can't quite say maybe with 100% certainty, but it seems very likely that there are little snippets in certain epistles and letters uh, that there are actually early Christian hymns that are being cited there by Paul, by others. Uh, and so we actually do see some Christian hymns in the New Testament. And so we see songs, not just in the Psalms, but we actually see them in some of those New Testament letters. And so we're going to be looking at songs of the Bible generally, not just the Psalms, but even in the New Testament. We'll look at a couple there as well. But we're going to start in, in the Old Testament, of course. We're sort of going to move our way through, and we'll start early on in the Psalms. And we're going to be looking at Psalm 9 today. And before we even dive in and we sort of look at, at this, uh, this psalm and we'll go through verse by verse and we'll really do all of our teaching and certainly apply what we've learned, uh, before we even dive in, I want to talk about the psalm as a whole because uh, it's significant. Psalm 9, in fact, very likely was originally joined to Psalm 10. And the two were probably initially one singular psalm, one singular song slash poem. It is certainly Hebrew poetry, so it's a poem, but a song as well. Uh, and there are various reasons that, that would make one think this. Uh, several of them, I'll sort of give you some of it, but the Greek translation of the Old Testament, of the Hebrew Old Testament, uh, has these two psalms linked together, Psalm 9 and Psalm, psalm 10, it, it puts them together. Thematically, they're certainly very linked. There is a little bit of a break and some sort of distinction at the end of where, where Psalm 9 ends and Psalm 10 begins, but they're certainly very similar, even thematically, in, in sort of the topic and what it addresses. Uh, but even more than that, more significant than all of those things, is that it seems as though Psalm 9 and 10 together form a singular acrostic poem or song. Uh, but as I said, it is poetry, and it, and it sort of has this framework of being an acrostic poem. That is, each stanza, as you move through one stanza after another after another, uh, each one starts with the successive letter, one letter after another, of the Hebrew alphabet, starting, to sort of put it in English terms, A to Z, or Aleph to Tau, or Tav, as some people say. So it goes one letter after another after another through the Hebrew alphabet. Uh, and so that really give, gives great evidence to the fact that these were likely originally uh, one psalm put together. Now, in fairness, the, uh, the acrostic is a little bit broken. There seem to be missing letters, missing bits, even though most of it is there. So as we look at this and we realize, well, probably these two psalms were originally one, but now they've been separated into two, probably for liturgical purposes, as you think of sort of use in temple worship. There was probably a reason that, that there was a decision to separate these two, as there is a bit of a natural break between Psalm 9 and Psalm 10. But we might look at this and say, so, so what's going on here? How do we sort of approach this psalm? It's a psalm of David, as we're going to see here. But I have no issue thinking of this, conceiving of it in this way, that God could have, and certainly I would say did, inspire David to write this. 
And there could be parts now that seem to be missing, right, as we look at the acrostic, not that you see that in the English, you'll only see that in the Hebrew, the one letter after another starting each stanza. But you might say, well, so are we missing bits of this psalm? I would say, well, God in inspired David to write this, and I would say God then at a later time inspired someone else, an editor, to go and break this apart into two different psalms for different uses for temple worship, since there are similar themes but still a little bit of, of different topics addressed. These two parts of an original singular psalm would have been used at different, at different times for different purposes in temple worship. And in that process, God also certainly could have, and I would say probably did, inspire uh, him to, to cut out certain bits of the psalm as David wrote it to further serve the purposes of that liturgical purpose in temple worship. So I'd say that's probably how we now have Psalm 9 and Psalm 10 as they are in our scriptures in the Bible. Probably originally one, and then sort of some editorial you know, changes, taking out certain parts uh, and breaking it into two for, for temple worship, and that God could have inspired every bit of that process, so that what we have here is not sort of a, a broken psalm and we don't really see what God originally intended it to be, but I would say no, we do have uh, exactly what God intended to be in scripture here for us, even if it wasn't originally exactly what David wrote as a singular psalm with every little piece there, but God could have inspired it to be um, edited for our purposes to wind up in scripture here and to be used in temple worship. So that's sort of a little bit about Psalm 9, and I, I want to talk a little bit sort of about big picture, what this is about before we dig in verse after verse after verse and just sort of march our way through the passage. Put simply, and this sort of ties in even with the song that we just sang, uh, it's really all about God fighting for his people. And in this specific situation, it's fighting for David, but really David as king, and so in a sense really, as, as you see here as we dig into this, clearly the setting is that of the nations around Israel, you know, whether it's the Philistines, we don't get the specifics of this, and it may not even be a singular situation that David's addressing, but maybe this is something that happened many times in his life and did, where the various wicked pagan nations all around Israel would rise up against Israel and sort of threaten Israel, whether the Philistines, the Moabites, the Edomites, the Ammonites, you name it, right? And of course, David would cry out, the Israelites would cry out to the Lord, and what does God do? He fights for his people, he delivers them, and opposes those who oppose him and his people and crushes them. And that's what we see taking place uh, in this psalm. So let's dive right in. Uh, we're going to start with the heading. We get some information here for Psalm 9. It says, for the director of music, to the tune of the death of the sun. I'm reading from the NIV. I'm certainly going to make little changes at various points here. Uh, you may have a different translation. There are certainly plenty of good translations. Yours may not say to the tune of the death of the sun. It may say something like, according to Muth Laben, that's certainly a common way of translating this, which is, Muth Laben is just literally uh, sort of transliterated into English, but the same sounds, that's sort of the Hebrew that's there, just with English uh, characters. But Muth Laben means the death of the sun. Now, some are slow to, to actually translate this into English and say that, oh, it's to the tune of the death of the sun, which I think the NIV has this correct. I think uh, what is the case here is that there's a song that people would have been familiar with, 
We don't have that tune. We don't know that song, The Death of the Sun. Uh, I don't know what that is. Nobody knows. But clearly in that day and age, right, there was a, a song and a, a tune that people would have been familiar with. And David here says, well, why don't I to that, to, why don't I write my own lyrics and set it to that tune? And that, I think, is what's going on here. It's something we see pretty commonly if we were to open up our hymnals. And you think of a lot of the hymns there. I'm not saying it's all of them by any means. But some may have been written in the 1800s. And the tune that we often associate with that hymn was written by some composer in the 1600s. That sort of a thing. That's what's taking place here. There's a tune that was familiar, and David says, let me write my own lyrics uh, to that tune, and that's what's taking place. The reason why some translations may not literally translate it, the Muthla Ben, into death of the sun, which is what it translates into, is they think, well, maybe there's been um, a little bit of a textual corruption where a couple letters have been dropped, and they're letters that show up in Muthla. Laben, so it's easy if you have sort of a reduplication of letters to drop one of them, accidentally skip over it. And maybe the vowel pointings, since the vowels came later, uh, at a later time, initially it was just the consonants that were written, and now the vowel points are sort of put down below the letters. Uh, well, maybe if those later on, the scribes, if they got the vowels incorrect, and if this Laben part of Muth Laben, if we take that out, then we're left with according to Alamoth, uh, which we do see elsewhere in the Psalms. We see it in one other place where, where him is sort of set, uh, where that is the Psalm is set to, you know, according to Alamoth. And we're not sure exactly what that means. Literally, it means sort of virgin or, or, or maiden or young woman. But clearly it's used not always in a literal sense. And it might mean, it could mean women are singing. It could mean high-pitched. We're, we're just not sure. But so there's some scholars who think maybe there's some sort of textual corruption, and that's what it should say is sort of according to Alamoth, but we're not sure. I think that involves three different changes. It seems highly unlikely that that would be the case. And in about a dozen places or so in the Psalms, we see them being set to a different tune. We see this in various Psalms where it says, to the tune of or according to, very literally is what it says. And then there's some sort of title for a song that would have been well-known, a tune that would have been well-known in that day. So I think very clearly sort of the evidence is supportive of the NIV translation here, that it's to the tune of the death of the sun. Don't know what the tune is for the death of the sun, but it was set to that tune. And then lastly, it says, a Psalm of David. And so David has written this. But so now let's jump into the body of the psalm. I know that's sort of a little bit of a, a good bit of time sort of introducing the psalm, but I think it's good to sort of, before diving in, to understand all of that, that framework there that we talked about. So jumping in, verse 1, David writes here, he says, I will give thanks to you, Lord, with all my heart. I will tell of all your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and rejoice in you. I will sing the praises of your name Oh, most high. Right now, we haven't yet been told of these wonderful deeds, right? The second part of verse 1, I will tell of all your wonderful deeds. David's about to do that. He's about to tell of the wonderful deeds. And not just in the sense of every wonderful deed from, you know, the beginning of creation all through to the present. Here, he's specifically talking about, I will tell of all your wonderful deeds as it pertains to this particular situation that he's about to address, which is, of course, the situation of, as I mentioned, the enemies of Israel rising up against David as king and the people of Israel and how God powerfully delivered them, right? Fought for his people, crushed those enemies, delivered his people, right? So that's the setting. Those are the deeds he's about to tell us. And what is the natural response here, right, is, of course, to praise God, to give him thanks, 
right, to worship him, right? God has done this wonderful thing for David, for the people of Israel. He has fought for his people, and what's the appropriate response? Well, first of all, just to, to proclaim to the world what God has done, to sort of shout from the rooftops, give, to testify, in a sense, to all these wonderful things that God has done, and in doing so, then, to give thanks, just to thank the Lord, to praise him for what he's done, and to worship him, and that's the right and appropriate response. So it begins with this word of praise, Right, and then verse three, now we get to these deeds. And again, we don't get all the specifics of who these nations, you know, which nation this was and so forth. And it may not be just a singular occasion because there were plenty of times when certainly there were nations around Israel that opposed Israel and, and there was war and battle and so forth. So it could be, in a sense, a general collection of various times in David's life where the enemies you know, sort of surrounded him, opposed him and stood against him and God fought for him. But he says, verse 3, my enemies turn back. And this is the imagery of battle, basically. They're fleeing. They're retreating. They're turning around, right, running for their lives, right? My enemies turn back. They stumble and perish before you. And notice, it's not before Israel and their swords and spears and all their weaponry. It's, it's the Lord who's fighting and who is defeating the enemies of David of Israel. They stumble and perish before you, for you have upheld my right and my cause. I'll retranslate that a little bit, the, the right and cause there. Really, the, the language used for both of those words is sort of legal case or claim. It's very much sort of uh, legal terminology here, and we continue to see this, the language of judge and so forth uh, in, in these verses here. And so what David has in mind is, well, here's David, here's the people of Israel, God's people who serve him faithfully. Certainly they didn't always do that through the ages, but certainly served him faithfully, especially as compared to the, the nation that would have opposed Israel, this wicked pagan nation that didn't acknowledge God, that, that was in rebellion toward him. And so David sort of, in a sense, as he cries out to the Lord, think of sort of the situation, he's in this, this troubling time, cries out to the Lord and, and brings this case before God that here's this wicked nation opposing your people, God, your upright people who serve you. Basically, God, do what is right. And what is right, of course, is to serve, of course, to, uh, to defend his people, to fight for his people, for the people of Israel, and oppose the wicked nations here. And of course, that's, that's what David's talking about here. As he, right, God turns the enemies around, right? They're fleeing. They stumble and perish before him, right? And David says, you have upheld my right or legal case and my cause, my legal case, right? I've brought this case before you and you have acted as just judge. You have done what is right. You fought for your faithful people and you have opposed the wicked and crushed them, right? So you have upheld my legal case and my legal claim sitting enthroned as the righteous judge. And here, sitting enthroned, it could be enthroned in the sense of as king, but here it really certainly is more the sense of enthroned as judge. Uh, the, the word used here doesn't have to be enthroned in the sense of a, a royal throne. It could be a seat of honor that a judge would have sat on as he gave judgment. But I would say as we look elsewhere, there's definitely also sort of royal language as well. And in the ancient Near East, it was very much expected that a king would also act as judge. That doesn't mean that there weren't other judges as well who would try the smaller cases. But if there was something that was big and significant, 
the, the king would sort of, in a sense, serve as the supreme court, right? This high judge who would, who would give judgment on significant matters. And so I'd say that's the imagery. It's not that, well, is God king here or judge? Well, he's, he's both. He's the king who also serves as judge, sitting enthroned as the righteous judge, right? Who makes this right judgment and acts on it, of course, bringing judgment against these wicked people who have risen up against the Lord's people, Israel and David, and of course has fought for his people. Going on, verse 5. You have rebuked the nations and destroyed the wicked. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. Endless ruin has overtaken my enemies. You have uprooted their cities. Even the memory of them has perished. Right, just more language here stating that God has, of course, fought for his people, delivered his people, delivered David, the people of Israel, from the hand of these enemies, and, of course, crushed the enemies in the process. Then going on, verse 7. The Lord reigns forever. He has established his throne for judgment. He rules the world in righteousness and judges the people with equity. The Lord is a refuge for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And of course, here David's thinking of himself and the people of Israel as, in this case, the oppressed, right? And the Lord is a refuge for them a stronghold in times of trouble. And certainly they were in a time of trouble, David and the people of Israel, as he's recounting what has taken place here, right? They were oppressed in, in a time of trouble, and God was a refuge to them, a stronghold for them. And he goes on, those who know your name trust in you, right? They trust in the Lord as they're in this time of trouble and distress. And think of David and the people of Israel, their time of trouble. And they leaned upon the Lord, trusted in him to fight for them, to be there for him. And of course, he came through. He was faithful, fought for his people, delivered them, and opposed those who opposed his people. So those who know your name trust in you. For you, Lord, have never forsaken those who seek you. Now we move on to verse 11 here. And it says, Sing the praises of the Lord enthroned in Zion. Proclaim among the nations what he has done. Right, so he's, he's just sort of recapped a little bit what has taken place, God, what God has done, right? He started out with this word of praise, right? Giving thanks to the Lord, praising him, worshiping him, and recounting, say, right, I will tell of all the wonders that you have done. I will tell of all your wonderful deeds. And then he tells of those wonderful deeds, right, what God has done for him, for the people of Israel, fighting for them. And now he sort of gets back here, in a sense, to what is the right and appropriate response in its sing praises to the Lord, enthroned in Zion. And I would say that the idea here of enthroned in Zion, of course, here he is as king, of course, but in Zion in the sense of this is very likely, I would say, after the point at which David brings the ark to Jerusalem, right? And so the ark's there, the tabernacle. We don't have the temple yet, right? Solomon builds that. But the tabernacle at this point is in Jerusalem. I would say it's at that point in David's reign. It wasn't always the case during David's reign, but that this is likely after that. And that's what he's saying. That's what he's referring to here. Sing praises, right? Sing the praises of the Lord enthroned in Zion, that is his dwelling place there, right, above the ark, where he makes the fullness of his presence dwell. And then he goes on, proclaim among the nations what he has done, right? So praise the Lord and, and proclaim, give testimony to, to all that the Lord has done for his people, his goodness, his faithfulness, his awesome power. For he who avenges blood remembers. He does not ignore the cries of the afflicted, right? So this avenger of blood, the idea here is, is uh, for someone who murders or seeks to take the life of another, right, then the avenger of, the, uh, of blood is the one who sort of 
brings about justice, sets that right. And so that's the view here. Here, God as the avenger of blood. Here are the nations seeking the life of David, the lives of the Israelites, and God is serving as that avenger of blood, right? The one who avenges blood and, of course, brings justice and crushes those who seek the lives of his people. He does not ignore the cries of the afflicted, right? It's not here's God's people and they're afflicted by the nations around and God's sort of like, you know, hope you can manage it on your own. Uh, hope you, you pull, it, pull through and wind up victorious, you know, but we'll see. No, he does not ignore the cries of the afflicted, of his people, right? But he fights for them and delivers them from this. And then it goes on, verse 13. Lord, see how my enemies persecute me. Have mercy and lift me up from the gates of death. I'm going to retranslate this a little bit. Uh, I think a better way to render this, certainly a, a better way, a little more literal, is be gracious to me, Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates of death. And I want to note here, as you look at this, you might think, well, right, see my affliction from those who, who hate me. Is this something that's ongoing now? It seems like, well, in the past, it, you know, prior verses, it was something that was in the past. David was recounting something that had taken place uh, this, this troubling time, but God showed up. He fought for his people. It's sort of done, taken care of, and now things are good for David. But now you get to verse 13 here, and it says, it seems like, well, is it still a present reality here where, right, there's this, still this, see my affliction from those who hate me. I would say this is David sort of hitting the rewind button and going back in time to the situation in which he, he stood and the people of Israel stood, this time of distress. And he's recounting here before God did act and deliver him and, and the people of Israel. In that moment, he's now recounting the, that, that prayer of his, that cry to the Lord uh, that he, of course, made to the Lord. It's sort of hitting the rewind button, going back to that time of distress. And this is what David cried out to the Lord. And it is, Lord, see how my enemies persecute me. Or that's the NIV as I translated it. Be gracious to me, Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates of death. Right, so in this troubling time, in this difficult time, who does he turn to? Right, he doesn't sort of trust in himself and his own might and his armies, but he leans upon the Lord. He goes before the Lord, be gracious to me, look upon me favorably, right? And the whole people of Israel see this affliction, of course, of your people, Lord. Lord, you, the one who lift me up from the gates of death. He recognizes God is the one who delivers, who fights for his people, who saves them from death, and he cries out to the Lord for help. And then reading on, verse 14 that I may declare your praises in the gates of daughter Zion and there rejoice in your salvation. So basically, Lord, deliver me, right? Be gracious to me. See my affliction from those who hate me. Oh, you who lift me, up, lift me up from the gates of death, right? Deliver me, Lord. Why? That I might declare your praises in the gates of daughter Zion and there rejoice in your salvation. Right? Certainly, David knows this is the appropriate response of God, and he knows God's going to do this, shows up and, and fights for his people and delivers them. Then what's David going to do? Well, he's going to go and sing the praises of the Lord. He's going to go and worship him and praise him. And he knows he could go and do that anywhere. He can praise the Lord anywhere. But what better place than to go to Jerusalem, to the tabernacle, and, of course, praise the Lord there and worship him there. And that's what's in mind here. And there, right, rejoice in your salvation. And so he's saying, deliver me, that, that of course I might go and do this. Deliver me so that I might sing your praises and glorify your name, O God. And of course he acknowledges that that is the only right and appropriate response when God shows up and delivers his people, to then give him thanks and praise him and worship him. 
And then he continues on here, verse 15. The nations have fallen into the pit they have dug. Their feet are caught in the net they have hidden. So in the prior couple of verses, he sort of hits the rewind button and looks at that, that prayer of his, how he cried out to the Lord for help. And now he's sort of responding, as he sort of has already spoken of, he's sort of addressing here how God responded, right, what God did. So I cried out to the Lord for help, David is saying, in effect, and then this is how he showed up and acted, how he delivered his people, right? The nations have fallen into the pit they have dug. Basically, what they plotted for Israel, the ruin of Israel, David and, his, and the people of Israel, well, that has fallen upon them, right? The nations have fallen into the pit they have dug. Their feet are caught in the net they have hidden. The Lord is known by his acts of justice. The wicked are ensnared by the work of their hands. I'm going to retranslate this one a little bit too. Verse 16, really a, a better rendering of this is, the Lord has made himself known, right? In sort of showing up, fighting for his people, crushing the wicked who opposed Israel, right? He is making himself known in that act, in that deed, in that deliverance. And then it goes on. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment, right? He's bringing judgment upon the wicked here. And then it goes on by the work of his hands, that is, by the hands of God. There are different ways to translate this. There's a little ambiguity here, but I would say this is the best way to translate it. By, his, by the work of his hands, that is, by the work of God's hands, ensnaring the wicked. So to put it a little more simply, he has executed judgment, ensnaring the wicked by the work of his, that is, God's hands. So then reading on, now we go to verse 17. And I would say here now we get to sort of David's speaking a little bit more generally. Up until this point, he's sort of addressed specifically his situation and, and the situation of Israel. Israel. So, right, the, sort of the, the wicked nations all around them, uh, their distressing, troubling situation, and he cries out to the Lord for help, of course, and God shows up, and, and he fights for his people, and he crushes the wicked and, and delivers his people, David, his people, Israel. Now David sort of goes to sort of the general and speaks generally of this is sort of how things operate and how things go. And sort of the, the, the context here is, of course, that naturally, t from time to time, and this is just sort of part of a broken, fallen world, the wicked will rise up against God's people. And then this is how God responds, right? So verse 17, the wicked go down to the realm of the dead. Realm of the dead here is Sheol. It could refer to generally the grave, the realm of the dead. It can at times refer specifically to hell, that is where the wicked are punished. It can sort of be either, just sort of generally the grave where both the righteous and the wicked go, or it can be very specifically uh, in reference to hell. Uh, of course, theologically speaking, what's going on here? These are wicked people in rebellion to the Lord. It's certainly speaking of them perishing in a, in a physical sense. And of course, if they're in rebellion to the Lord, then they're going to go to hell. So, of course, it, it, both are true. But I would say the emphasis here of what David is trying to say is he's talking about physical death, that, that these are wicked people, right? He's sort of framing this in light of his situation, but he's still speaking generally that, uh, and we see this in his situation, that the wicked, as they rose up against David, against the Lord's people, well, what did the Lord do? He defeated them, he crushed them, and they perished, right? In battle, God fought for his people, Israel, and the wicked perished. And so it's talking really most specifically about bodily death. But also, of course, what's in mind is, well, those who are in rebellion to the Lord, when they die, physically speaking, then there's eternal death as well that comes upon them as well. So, when the wicked rise up against God's people, that's sort of the context here, well, what happens? Generally speaking, and this is what happens in David's situation, but he's speaking generally here, the wicked go down to the realm of the dead. All the nations that forget God. 
but God will never forget the needy. The hope of the afflicted will never perish. And this is the last one I'm going to retranslate, but I, I do want to translate this a little more literally. I think it renders it better. So it's the wicked go down to the realm of the dead or to Sheol, all the nations that forget God. But now here's where I'll change the translation. For the needy will not be forgotten forever, nor will the hope of the afflicted perish forever. Right, so the idea here is this, just to sort of sum it up here. Basically, the wicked, right, this is just sort of a normal pattern. You're going to see this in a broken, fallen world where they rise up against God's people, against the Lord, against his people. And how does God act? Well, he's not going to, as it says, he's not going to forget the needy forever, right? The needy will not be forgotten forever, nor will the hope of the afflicted perish forever. And the sense here is that it might seem at first like God's not acting, right? Maybe you're in this distressing situation and you're crying out to the Lord and it feels like God doesn't seem to be doing anything. What's going on? Uh, and that's the wording here, for the needy will not be forgotten forever. It might seem like at first... God's nowhere. What's he doing? And yet the reality is God is there. He's present with his people. And God's just saying, I'm going to fight for you. I am fighting for you. It's just going to be on my timing, in my perfect timing, in my way. And you need to be patient. And so that's sort of the sense of what's being said here. When the wicked rise up uh, against the Lord, against his people, God will not uh, forget his people with finality. It may seem like for a time nothing's happening, but he will show up. He is always there with his people, always fighting for his people, just in his timing, in accordance with his will. And what will be the result for the wicked? Well, they will go down to the realm of the dead. Not that in every situation when the wicked rise up against God's people that it always ends in physical death. Uh, that was the case for David's situation here with Israel, and so he's framing it in that sense. But sort of generally speaking, it's just sort of standing in for there will be consequences, they will be punished, God will crush whoever and whatever opposes his people as he fights for his people. So then moving on to verses 19 and 20, sort of the close of this psalm, we've sort of already been talking about here, David has been talking about sort of the general, right? He started off with this word of praise and sort of the whole basis for it is, well, what God has done for him and for his people. He's praising the Lord, giving him thanks because of how God has fought for him, fought for his people, opposed the wicked, right? And that is cause for thanksgiving and praise and just, uh, just worshiping the Lord. But then he sort of comes to the general and says, it's not just that God fought for, hey, me, David, or the people of Israel this one time, but this is just what he does. When the wicked rise up against his people, right, what does God do? Well, he shows up. He's not going to forget his people. He's not going to forget the afflicted, not in an enduring way. It may seem for a short time like nothing's happening, but God is there, and he's just going to act in his timing. He'll show up. He'll fight for his people, right, and the wicked will be punished. And so he's sort of speaking in general terms there. And now as David's speaking in general terms, he realizes that, yes, in the past, and he's certainly spoken a lot of the past and, and how God has fought for his people, but he realizes the wicked rising up against God's people, against him, David, against the people of Israel, against God's people through the ages, against us, the church, right? It's not like that just happens this one time and that's it, but that it's going to be a pattern. It's going to recur. We live in a broken, fallen world where this evil and wickedness and all sorts of things will rise up against the people of God. And David recognizes that. And so then he has sort of this closing prayer entreaty, right? This, this closing cry to the Lord in relation to the recognition that time and again, God's people will wind up in a time of distress. And sort of David is addressing that and saying, Lord, whenever that happens, whenever your people are in a time of trouble, are in a time of distress, do this. And this is what he says, arise, Lord, 
do not let mortals triumph. There literally it says do not let man triumph, but it, it, it's man in the sense of sort of mere man. Do not let mere man or mortals, it's a good translation. Arise, Lord, do not let mere man triumph. Let the nations be judged in your presence. Strike them with terror, Lord. Let the nations know that they are only mortal or mere men. Right, so David's sort of looking to the future now, not looking back like he had been at sort of the start of the psalm, but now he's looking to the future, recognizing it's not like it's all over. Wickedness will crop up time and again, time and again, and God's people will wind up at times, right? And it's just, you see it through history in times of distress, and he's sort of looking forward to those times and saying, God, do what you do. You're a God who fights for his people, so Lord, whenever your people wind up in some time of trial, rise up, Lord, fight for them, and oppose and crush whatever opposes you and your people. And so sort of to look at this, to come back big picture, we've sort of gone through verse by verse by verse, but it's always good to at the end kind of come back and look at the psalm as a whole. And certainly the central theme that runs throughout is this theme of God fighting for his people, right? And David's here recounting how God has done that and closes with a plea that God would continue to do that through the ages for his people. And also certainly present in the psalm is not just that God fights for his people, but that most appropriate response of testifying to that fact, right, telling the world, shouting from the rooftops all of the wondrous things that God has done, how he has fought for his people and delivered them, and in that to, to praise the Lord as you remember all that God has done, to praise him, to worship him, to give him thanks. And so as we look at this and we say sort of what's our takeaway, we don't want to just come to Psalm 9 and say sort of theologically speaking what's going on here, and oh great, now we have an intellectual knowledge of Psalm 9, but sort of no takeaway and application for our lives. We always want to have some sort of takeaway, something that we can apply to our lives. And I'd say it's, it's this, and, and it's threefold. I want to give three separate, though certainly related, applications. And the first is this. Whenever you're in a time of trial, uh, in distress, and maybe you're in one of those times now, whatever it might be, and it could be because wicked people are rising up against you. Uh, maybe it's more likely something else. It could be financial difficulties or illness or family difficulties, marriage difficulties, whatever it might be. But as sort of you wind up in a time of trial and trouble and distress, lean on the Lord. Trust in him. Look to him to be the one to fight for you, recognizing that, that we are weak. We are unable, and yet God is all-powerful and infinitely able of handling whatever distressing time or troubling time you're going through. Learn from this psalm, right? David leaned upon, upon the Lord. In his time of trial, he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord saved him and delivered him. And that's just what God does. He fights for his people. Whenever we're in times of trial and distress, it doesn't mean he's always going to fight for us in the way we want in our timing, in a way that looks exactly like how we would desire, but nonetheless God promises to fight for his people, to be present with us in the midst of whatever trial we're going through and to fight for us. And we know that however it comes to, however God operates, whatever the end result is, it will be an end result that is for our good. We know that God works all things for the good of his people. And so, he may not operate in the exact way that we would desire, but in any and every trial and difficult time, God is there fighting for his people, and he will work it all out for good for his people. And so whatever you're going through, maybe now, or even if things are good and smooth and wonderful now, know that it's only a matter of time before some sort of struggle and trial comes your way. And the first application is when that time comes, look to the Lord to fight for you. Look to him to deliver you and see you through whatever 
trial and troubling thing you're going through. The second application point uh, it certainly plays off of what's going on here in the psalm. And not only is David trusting in the Lord, of course, but also what we see, particularly as we look at it earlier on in, in this, this psalm, in the beginning, he's looking back and taking the time to recount and tell of all that God has done uh, in fighting for him in the past, whether it's a singular time in the past, whether it's multiple times and he's sort of putting them all together and recognizing time after time the Lord has fought for him. But there is a place in this, uh, for doing this, and this is what I want our second application point to be, is to take time today, right, after the service, after the, the church picnic, as you head back home, to take the time just to sort of look over your life and, and think about it and look at all the, the trials that you have gone through in life and see how God has been present with you in the midst of all of it, in the midst of every single one, and seen you through it and fought for you in the midst of each and every trial. Take the time to really do that. I know you're probably not going to be able to think of every single one over the course of however many years, however old you are, but still take the time just to recount, even if just some of the major trials and struggles and hard times in life, and remember how God was there for you and fought for you and delivered you from that and saw you through that and worked it all out for your good. And then have the response that David has, right? What does he say? He says, I will give thanks to you, Lord, with all my heart. I will tell of all your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and rejoice in you. I will sing the praises of your name, O Most High. We ought to have that same response as we sort of think back over all these times that God has fought for us uh, and that he has posed what, opposed whatever stood against us, right, and delivered us from things. Our response as we think about all that is to... Thank God. The most appropriate response is just to bow down before him, worship him, praise him, give him thanks that he is a loving God, an all-powerful God who fights for his people, who has fought for us. And also to have the response, as David did here, to testify to that. Not just to sort of keep it to ourselves and sort of it's just between me and you, Lord, and I'm going to praise you, I'm going to worship you, I'm going to give you thanks. But David just can't contain it. It's like God has just done such a wondrous thing, has acted in such great faithfulness and love and power that he can't help but just sort of shout it from the rooftops and, and declare it to the nations, all these wondrous things that God has done. And that should be our response as well. And so that's our second application point. But I want to give a third, and while the second sort of looks back at the past, the third looks toward the future, and really, it really is drawn from those last two verses in this psalm, where David's sort of thinking of what's to come, thinking of the future, and sort of this normal pattern of the wicked are going to rise up again and again against the Lord, against his people. It's sort of what the wicked do, right? Trialing, tri trials, troubling times, times of distress, they're going to come upon God's people time and again. And David's sort of recognizing that, looking to the future, and this is his prayer, right? How he closes, right? Arise, Lord, do not let mortals triumph. Let the nations be judged in your presence. Strike them with terror, Lord. Let the nations know they are only mortal, right? In a sense, to put it simply, his response, recognizing what is to come upon God's people time and again in life, these times of trials, right? These, these distressing times, What's his response is just to cry out to the Lord and say, Lord, rise up and do what you do. Fight for your people, not just right now, not just in a singular situation, but, but through the ages for your people, right? Generation after generation after generation, year after year, Lord, keep on fighting for your people in every troubling time that they encounter. And I want our third application to really be playing off of that and, and recognizing that we ought to be doing that as well, that we as God's people should recognize that troubling times are going to come, going to come upon us, going to come upon our brothers and sisters in Christ 
in this church and even globally speaking, our, our brothers and sisters in Christ all over the world, right? I don't think David here just has himself in mind or just his people in a sense, but rather he's sort of thinking big picture here. He's thinking all of God's people through the ages, and that's his prayer that God time, in, uh, time after time, right, day in, day out, would be fighting for his people in the day of distress every time that that comes about every time that trials come. And I want that to be our third application point, that we would do the same, that we would take the time today, but, but not just today, but for this to be sort of a, a regular pattern of ours, that time and again we would be coming before the Lord and saying, Lord, arise and do what you do, which is to fight for your people. Whether you're going through something tough right now in the, in, in the present, whether that's just something that's coming down the road, but again, not even thinking of yourself, but thinking, of, well, New Hope Chapel, or your brother and sister in Christ here in the room with you, or your brother and sister in Christ over in China, or Africa, or India, or wherever, recognizing that wickedness will oppose the Lord and his people in an enduring way, and to have that prayer, Lord, rise up and do what you do. Fight for your people. Fight for me. Fight for each and every one of us here. Fight for all of your people in every distressing time. And of course, Lord, do it all for your glory, out of love for your people, but ultimately for you, for your glory. And so I want us to hear these three application points, to really faithfully live them out, and just in a closing way, just to remember that God is an awesome God who fights for us, who fights for his people. Amen. And let's pray. Lord God, what an awesome God you are. And how amazing that you would fight for us. Even lowly, wretched, weak, sinful us, Lord. You care about us, you love us, and you fight for us, your people. And that should blow our minds, Lord. And if you are for us, who can be against us? You are awesome in power, and there is none who can stand before you. And what a great encouragement that is and ought to be for us in our trying times, knowing that you're there for us. The Almighty God is there for us, fighting for us, and seeing us through that trial. What great comfort that ought to bring us, Lord. I pray that as difficult times come in life, Lord, whether that's current for some of us, or maybe down the road, a few months, a few years, whatever it might be, Lord. I pray that in every trying situation, we would lean upon you. We wouldn't try to handle it in our own strength, thinking we've got this, but that we would trust in you to fight for us, your people, and to see us through it, Lord. I pray also that we would learn from David here and take the time to reflect upon the past upon past trials and hardships, past times of distress, and how you were there with us in the midst of each and every one, how you fought for us and brought us through it and even used it for our good, Lord. And may we, as we ponder that, may our response be to testify to that, to declare it to the world, to pour forth praise and thanksgiving and worship as we ought to, Lord. And may we not only look back, but also look forward and recognize that time and again, wickedness will oppose you and your people, Lord. That's true for us, for me, your people, for each and every one of us as your people. It's true for 
your church all across the globe, Lord. And I pray that as wickedness and all sorts of things oppose your people day after day after day, that in every moment, in every trial, you would be present, that you would rise up, Lord, and fight for your people, oppose and crush whatever stands against you and your people, for us, but mostly for yourself, for your glory, Lord. And may we never forget or lose sight of the fact that you are an awesome, mighty warrior God who fights for us, your people. In your name we pray. Amen.